Hello and welcome to Value Driven Data Science, brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting. I'm your host, Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and today I'm joined by guest Dr. Alessandro Negro to talk about graph-powered data science. Alessandro, welcome to the show. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me. Alessandro has literally written the book on graph data science. In addition to being the chief scientist at GraphAware, the world's number one Neo4j consultancy and managing director at GraphAware Italy, he is also the author of Graph-Powered Machine Learning and the author of the recently released Knowledge Graphs Applied. Now, I haven't read Knowledge Graphs Applied yet, but I have read Graph-Powered Machine Learning and I'll just say this is an excellent book that I would recommend to any data scientist looking to get started with graph data science. Not only does it provide all the necessary theory in a manner that's very easy to understand, um, it also gives worked examples, including uh, Python and Cypher source code that can be used to produce them. And yeah, when I worked through that book, I created my own use case and, you know, just created a Sherlock Holmes knowledge graph, and I was able to use that code to build it on my own home laptop. Something you should be very proud of, Alessandro. Yeah, I'm definitely happy that uh, you found it useful, you know, for concrete use cases uh, and for practicing with your uh, graphs. One thing that's probably worth calling out before we go too far is um, when we're talking about graphs, we're not talking about histograms or pie charts here, are we? Yes, definitely, you know, because uh, this is uh, something that the language sometimes can uh, generate issue. Um, so actually, when we say graph is just a nodes and relationship, um, generally we refer to Instagram as charts. So just to be clear, we will use the charts for Instagram or pie chart or whatever else um, is a, a graphic and uh, graphs, uh, whatever is a, a model uh, that represents um, our business use cases. Uh, through nodes and relationships. Yeah, so it's sort of like a network, like a social network. Exactly. Social network is a, an example of a, a graph application. Yeah, so if everyone just thinks Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn, then they're probably going to be fine. Yep, exactly. How did you first become interested in working with graphs? It happened uh, many years ago, uh, I would say 2012. Um, and the first time that I was reasoning in terms of graph was because I was uh, designing a, a sort of a multi-layer uh, hierarchy um, representing um, these uh, agents and sub-agents uh, um, world, you know, in which you have agents having uh, under themselves uh, many other people uh, per area, for example, and, and such. And uh, I found out that the best way to represent this was, of course, using uh, um, a graph because uh, this allowed me to um, sort of uh, represent in the exact way the uh, the reality um, as it is. And so I was, let's say, exposed uh, for the first time to, to the graph and specifically to Neo4j that at the time was like uh, the version 0 0.9 or such. And, um, and from this first, uh, um, let's say, meeting, uh, many, many other ideas uh, came. And uh, so um, I built uh, the first uh, recommendation engine on top of uh, Neo4j as my first experience of applying uh, data science uh, 
let's say, to the uh, graph world. Did the organization that you are doing work for already have Neo4j or did you have to actually do the exploration in order to discover Neo4j was the best tool for this use case? Well, at that time, this was just a, a night uh, and a weekend project. You know, it was my uh, personal interest in the in the field um, of the science first and then uh, graph. Um, so I was just playing around and uh, I built a career um, by this night and weekend project. So Neo4j, that's a graph database, which I take it, as the name would suggest, is specially designed for holding um, graph data, so the nodes and the relationships. Is it feasible to work with graph data if you don't have a graph database underpinning it? Well, in theory, it is possible. Um, it depends on the sides from, from my point of view, in the sense okay. that uh, um, there are many uh, graph databases uh, that they offer, uh, let's say, a graph interface. So they reason in terms of uh, nodes and relationship, but behind the scene, they have, uh, I don't know, whatever relational database or key value data store and, uh, and such. Uh, of course, there are, there are pros and cons in, um, in any approach. Let's say that uh, the, the so-called graph native uh, um, databases like Neo4j, um, they store the, the data uh, as a graph. So literally they have a list of nodes uh, and for each node they store the relationships and so on and so forth. So literally they have this uh, uh, adjacency list uh, uh, storage mechanism that um, makes the, the traversal of this graph uh, much faster. Um, because uh, of course, while we are, for example, finding shortest path or you are navigating a, a graph starting from a node, this is a, uh, much faster because uh, you don't have to go in a table or in a key value store and look up for that node and all the relationship and then the other node and all the relationship and such because uh, you have all these attached to each node. So you start from a node, then you see all the relationship, navigate this relationship and you move further from, from this. So in terms of graph traversal, this type of uh, um, storage mechanism is much faster. Uh, the drawback is of course that uh, it cannot be, uh, let's say, uh, shard. So you cannot uh, uh, spread it across multiple machines because uh, it is much more complicated. You know, there is no easy way unless uh, the graph can be easily split uh, in independent subgraph. So other graph databases uh, leverage these uh, different data structure based uh, again on key value store, for example, for sharding the, uh, the database, which means uh, dividing in piece uh, and storing uh, in different servers. That, of course, has some other advantages that are not definitely for graph traversal, but for certain type of graph uh, analytics. So the, the way in which you store this graph um, has a, a direct impact uh, uh, on the efficiency of certain type of uh, use cases versus others. What's the largest graph database you've come across in your work? Well, we definitely stored or created and store um, big uh, databases. A few of them had like uh, billions of, uh, of nodes and the relationship. Um, and uh, it was uh, related to certain law enforcement uh, uh, use cases in which you have to collect data from uh, a huge number of data sources and uh, hence you have um, a big database uh, to handle in this case. 
I'm guessing that something like Twitter or Facebook has an AF4J or similar database underpinning um, their operations. Well, yeah, definitely they have uh, a graph database, uh, but uh, in both cases, uh, they created uh, their own uh, uh, graph database uh, data structure. Uh, both Twitter and Facebook uh, have, uh, let's say, their own uh, version of a graph database that they created by themselves. Other companies are relied on uh, um, on Neo4j, but uh, these are, uh, let's say, uh, big, uh, big uh, social network uh, uh, providers have their own because they have very specific type of uh, analysis to do. And so they created their own. Yeah. And uh, I mean, a big tech company has the um, financial capability to develop their own graph database, whereas um, your average company doesn't. Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, they have the resources that they need uh, to build um, by themselves. And let me say also that uh, they started uh, a bit earlier than Neo4j. You know, Twitter was there before Neo4j. So they had uh, this need uh, um, before Neo4j sort of uh, democratized the, the concept of graph database to all the other, uh, the other companies. You know, as usual, you have the early adapters and definitely uh, Facebook and Twitter were in, in this area, and uh, Neo4j uh, literally took this uh, uh, this idea and uh, made uh, a product out of it that um, uh, other companies can use. And the same did Twitter in some way or the other. If you want, you can access to the software that they use for storing the graph database, but um, it's not handy, uh, you know, for any use case. It has a, a very specific. Uh, a uh, set of features and a uh, very set specific tasks that you can accomplish with uh, that database. Instead, Neo4j, let's say, since uh, they were doing a business out of this graph database, they made it and they are still making it uh, generic, let's say, so for solving uh, multiple type of problems rather than just one. So far, we've touched on two use cases for graph databases. So we've touched on um, the social network use case, and you also mentioned a law enforcement use case that you'd come across. Uh, what other use cases have you come across for graph databases? Well, I would say many. Um, really, uh, the recommendation that um, I was mentioning before, because uh, it uh, belongs to my heart, uh, since I started my career in this um, area with the recommendation engine, is definitely uh, something that is still very active, not only because uh, um, it uh, empowers complex type of recommendation engine, but uh, it solves also complex issues around uh, this type of uh, uh, machine learning task. Uh, I'm thinking specifically to cold start or contextual recommendation. Um, so these kind of problems can be uh, solved in an easier way if you are using a graph database. But apart from recommendation that is still an odd topic uh, in the graph space, uh, there are many others that are um, jumping out. Uh, I'm thinking about uh, fraud detection, uh, for example. I'm thinking of uh, um, criminal intelligence that we were discussing before. But um, also, very recently, there is a new trend that uh, uh, I will define the knowledge graph trend, in which uh, you know this uh, semantic web um, encountered the, the, the graph space. And uh, from this, uh, let's say, merging of ideas, uh, this uh, uh, knowledge graph idea, um, you know, was born uh, in some way. And this uh, uh, literally opened uh, many other uh, domains uh, to this uh, uh, graph uh, uh, way of thinking. Um, because uh, imagine that uh, 
you have a, a medical uh, use case, uh, the knowledge graph can literally help you in um, uh, gathering uh, information uh, from various type of uh, data sources, uh, literature, uh, as well as ontologies, as well as uh, uh, structured data sources, and uh, combine in this uh, big uh, single uh, source of knowledge where a clinician or where researchers can, uh, um, let's say, rely on uh, for making uh, um, any type of analysis, but also for exploration purposes and speeding up their um, current research, uh, for example. This is another uh, very relevant uh, use case. So in the biological or specifically biomedical space, uh, the knowledge graphs, so these specific type of graphs are becoming a sort of a, a standard. And, um, and the same is, uh, um, for example, in the financial sector or in the banking sector, where again, they are using this uh, knowledge graph, uh, again, this single source of knowledge uh, for offering, um, not only for detection that I mentioned before, but also advanced services to their, um, to their customers. There is this concept of customer 360 that is jumping out here and there in which uh, what they are doing is to collect uh, all the information around uh, a user and performing a cross-selling, for example, or uh, performing an advanced type of uh, suggestion, recommendation again, um, as well as uh, uh, tailoring a certain type of uh, offering to, to them based on uh, their specific uh, needs or to the needs that they could have in the um, in the future. Uh, in all these uh, cases, uh, what, there is uh, something in common, uh, that is the ability uh, of the graph and specifically the knowledge graph to aggregate data from uh, different type of data sources, both structured and structured, and uh, offering um, a unique view, uh, let's say a global view on the, uh, on the information. So I'm, I'm just still trying to visualize this. So it's very easy to visualize the idea of a social network because you've got, you know, the nodes being people and the edges being the connections between me and someone who's my Facebook friend, for example. But um, with a knowledge graph, I'm guessing that the nodes would be individual concepts. Um, for example, a person or a place or um, a disease, if we're talking about medical research. Yes, exactly. Would a relationship be something like, you know, if we're talking about a tennis player, say, Novak Djokovic has played tennis at the Wimbledon tennis court, for example. Would that be right? Well, that's exactly what it is. You know, um, let me give you um, a, a broad overview. The graph as it is, is a very, very simple mathematical concept. You know, it is just... Um, a set uh, of nodes and relationships, or a set of vertex and uh, edges, if you prefer. So as a mathematical concept, it is super simple. You know, uh, everybody can understand. Then what happens with the social network that you were mentioning before is that we are adding a sort of semantic on top of uh, uh, this graph. So we are saying that uh, nodes represent uh, people and uh, relationships represent uh, social relationship between uh, between people friendship uh, co-working uh, and, and whatever you know the knowledge graph is exactly the same concept it is a graph nothing more nothing less but uh, we applied a much more semantic on top of it you know and according to the domain in which you are these uh, nodes represent uh, different concepts so uh, if we are in the biomedical space as we were mentioning um, uh, nodes can be genes diseases uh, uh, proteins 
treatments, whatever. And the relationships are, for example, biological connection between uh, a gene uh, and a related protein, or can be um, a relationship between the proteins because they interact together, or between diseases because they are connected uh, somehow. Um, uh, and the, these diseases can, can be connected to relative genes that are um, well-known uh, connections uh, for example, between genes and, uh, and diseases and so on. So we can say uh, that the knowledge graph is a set, uh, literally, of uh, interconnected entities with their attribute and, uh, and relevant relationships between, uh, uh, between these uh, uh, nodes and, and concepts that are specific for a domain. And with that um, example of the diseases and the genes, I'm imagining that you could have something like um, a disease like COVID, which is um, connected to this particular, I don't know, protein. And then you could have that protein is also linked to this protein and this disease. And that would allow you to find similarities between diseases. And presumably, and I know nothing about medical research, so I'm just making this up. Um, but presumably that would help a medical researcher to identify connections which might help them to create some sort of novel treatment for this particular disease. Yes, exactly. Um, there is an interesting point uh, about uh, this example, you know, because uh, first of all, there is a, uh, a concept that I like to mention all the time that I'm speaking about uh, graphs. You know, once you have all your data stored in the form of a graph, every single node and every single relationship could be an access point for your analysis, for your exploration. Exactly as you mentioned, you know, I have a specific disease in mind. I would like to explore the, you know, the surroundings, let's say, around this COVID. That's one perfect uh, and uh, uh, I would say one of the most common use cases uh, or for, for graph um, or usages, if you prefer. Uh, then, of course, there are other type of more complex uh, analysis. Uh, and um, again, you mentioned this, uh, um, you know, in your example. So one of the major use cases, I would say, in the biological space is the so-called drug repurposing. That um, means uh, that you have drugs or compounds already existing, and you would like to see if uh, existing drugs, existing compounds can be used for a new disease. This is exactly what happened for COVID. You know, if you remember when we were mm -hmm. using uh, hydroxychloroquine, for example, as a as a way of treating um, COVID, then we discovered that it was not the case. But unfortunately, at the time, we didn't have uh, the knowledge that we have right now. Uh, this is a classical use case, uh, in which case uh, we are using a, a complex machine learning, um, let's say, tasks for uh, performing uh, uh, this type of drug repurposing. That's, that's translated uh, is no more, no less than uh, a so-called link prediction. So you have a graph with existing links and existing, uh, let's say, relationships, and you would like to predict uh, um, unseen or unused uh, relationships. And in this case, uh, instead of doing uh, what we were mentioning before, like a simple exploration, you are doing a deep analysis of your graph in order to accomplish uh, much more complex tasks that is uh, like in this case um, link prediction so you are literally discovering um, new relationships where they are hidden somewhere in the structure of the graph for example you know and drug repurposing is a classical example so if uh, a new version of COVID came out so COVID-23 um, god help the world let's hope that doesn't happen but um, that would be something that had previously not existed in that graph. But given whatever limited information we had on that, we could then predict um, 
what previous drugs is that linked to and then hopefully um, come up with some treatment for it very quickly so that the world doesn't end up in another series of lockdowns. Yeah, exactly. This is uh, in reality what happened already with the COVID-19. If you think that uh, AstraZeneca, for example, that was one of the first uh, company producing uh, a vaccine, they used uh, literally a knowledge graph for producing their um, vaccine. So there are plenty of talks about this specific topic. So it happened already. Of course, hopefully uh, the next time that, uh, as you said, uh, we wish won't happen again. Um, but uh, in the case, uh, knowledge graphs can definitely play another key role in the, uh, let's say, discovery of new cures for the diseases or um, for finding uh, existing drugs that can be helped. One knowledge graph that I'm familiar with is the Google knowledge graph. So um, for any listeners out there who aren't familiar with it, uh, whenever you search on something on Google, like, for example, a person's name or a city location, you'll often get that box down the side of the page if you're using the desktop version or at the top of the screen if you're using it on mobile. And it'll give you um, key facts about that person or that location. What is the practical application of that Google knowledge graph beyond uh, providing interesting facts about locations and people when you search on them? Well, definitely, uh, I would say that um, knowledge graphs were uh, introduced uh, in this world and for this specific type of usage uh, from uh, from Google for the first time. You know, if you search for uh, knowledge graphs uh, on this Google trend uh, um, let's say feature available, available in Google, you would notice that around 2012, you will see, uh, let's say, a spike that is related to the introduction for the first time of this concept. Uh, after then, that uh, nothing was the same. And uh, they had an interesting uh, way for uh, uh, introducing this concept that was searching for things instead of searching for strings. Uh, you know, that is exactly what you described, you know, if I'm, I'm searching for a specific concept, I don't want to get only the list of documents mentioning uh, uh, this specific word or set of words that is searching for strings, uh, but I would like to get exactly that specific thing. So the box uh, on, the, on the side of the search result is um, literally the, the thing hopefully, or the things that we were searching for. And that changed, um, changed dramatically the way in which they were offering these uh, search results. And uh, it is entirely uh, powered by Knowledge Graph, but definitely is uh, one of the most relevant uh, usages uh, of Knowledge Graph for their specific case. At the end of your book, Graph Power uh, Machine Learning, you go through a use case of how to build a Knowledge Graph from scratch. Uh, would you be able to give the listeners a condensed version of how they'd go about um, building a knowledge graph? Because um, one of the things that I thought was really cool about that book was, even though obviously someone like me couldn't build a knowledge graph the size of Google's, it was pretty cool to be able to build my own Sherlock Holmes knowledge graph just on my laptop on the weekends. Let me say that uh, these uh, two chapters were so useful to many people that we decided to, to write another entire book that will be on that topic. So um, I would say that uh, Knowledge Graph Applied, that is the book we are working um, to in, uh, in these uh, months, um, started uh, exactly from, from this idea, you know, from the last two chapters 
of the uh, of the previous book in which uh, I was building this knowledge graph and extended uh, to let's say other 600 pages more or less. Um, the the reason uh, is uh, uh, what you mentioned. You know, this is definitely one of the major concerns that uh, uh, many people and many companies have. You know, how can I build a knowledge graph? Um, well, let me say that uh, th there are two major um, uh, not issues, but uh, approaches, uh, and uh, both of them are valid, and they should in some way merge. On one side, of course, you can have uh, structured data sources, uh, CSV files, uh, relational databases, uh, or um, uh, many other um, sources that are structured by uh, definition. And uh, for this, uh, it's relatively simple. Once you identify the, the key entities or the key concepts, as we were saying before, uh, that uh, you would like to store in the in the knowledge graph, sorry, in the knowledge graph, and uh, uh, and you identified also the relationships and the global schema. Uh, then it's pretty uh, straightforward to um, load this data in the form of a graph. You know, uh, generally uh, everybody can do it. Um, then there is a, another interesting area that is uh, much more complicated, but definitely uh, more um, satisfying. It is uh, the conversion of uh, the so-called unstructured data sources in a knowledge graph. And that's where you could have more fun, as I said, because um, imagine that you have a text. Uh, you know, uh, a text, uh, as I said, generally is referred uh, as uh, unstructured. But in reality, uh, our languages have um, a lot of structure inside, you know, our grammar, uh, syntactic dependencies and such. So you can leverage this structure and uh, literally extract uh, an enormous amount of information from uh, um, uh, from the text. Typical example is the, the so-called named entities, which means that you should recognize in a text uh, if, uh, um, let's say, a couple of words are, how to say, uh, a person rather than a location, rather than a company, and so on and so forth, or a disease. And uh, uh, apart from recognizing these uh, um, entities, uh, you should be able also to recognize a relationship between these uh, um, entities, you know, that uh, in some way are simple to extract and others are more complicated. Uh, the, class, the, the simplest example is the connection between subject, verb, and uh, object. And then you can extract easy uh, a relationship between um, uh, the subject and the object, for example, of, the, of a specific sentence. Uh, others are a bit more complicated to extract, but still, uh, doable. So this task is called entity relationship extraction and can be accomplished uh, by using uh, rules as uh, it is presented in the in the book. But also you can create a complex, uh, uh, let's say, machine learning uh, uh, models to extract uh, these sort of um, uh, relationships between uh, between entities. And there is a, I would say, a third task um, again related to this area of um, um, conversion from unstructured to uh, knowledge graph. It is um, the so-called name entity disambiguation or entity linking, which means that uh, you are connecting these uh, extracted entities to um, a sort of knowledge base. So for example, if you are extracting uh, uh, the word diabetes, um, then uh, you should be able to connect it to the right type of diabetes, you know, um, and so on and so forth. So this connection between uh, an entity extracted from a text and uh, let's say the well-known entity in a, uh, in a knowledge base um, allows you to not only know more about that specific entity, more than just the name, um, but also extract the connections between this entity and other entities inside the text or inside the, the knowledge base that you have. 
I'm just guessing this is how Google did their knowledge graph. So they could have taken basically every web page, um, extracted the named entities from those web pages, or even just from something like Wikipedia, and then use that to connect nodes and entities and build their um, knowledge graph. Yes, exactly. Uh, I would say that this Wikipedia that you mentioned is uh, still the most relevant knowledge base that uh, everybody is using uh, in many cases. Uh, you know, I would say in many generic cases like uh, Google, for example, you know, uh, you notice already that whenever you search for some well-known name or well-known location, the first uh, box that um, we were discussing before will be a wiki page. Uh, so definitely, uh, you know, Wikipedia um, represent uh, the, the the main source of this um, uh, knowledge graph for things. Um, there is a, only one drawback that is related to the, um, let's say, to the specific domains um, that you could have, uh, you know, on your path. Uh, for example, if you are speaking about a medical domain or um, other very uh, tiny uh, domains, uh, unfortunately, the availability of a well-known and well-structured knowledge base is, is uh, less, let's say, uh, probable, um, and which means that uh, you need to build your own knowledge base. You need to build your own mechanism for extracting relevant information from text. Uh, Google, of course, uh, built uh, its own uh, name and recognition models and into relationship extraction models um, on generic applications on generic domains, not very specific ones. So it's basically the same as what you find with any of those pre-built models. Um, the pre-built models are designed to cater for the um, generic use case that the majority of people want to use. But if you have a very specific organization-based um, application, you're going to have to build your own use case. Yes, exactly. That's perfectly representing what happens uh, every day you know it's rare for a specific company like i don't know in the financial sector or in the law enforcement sector to can rely on existing models because they are too generic you know they have specific needs they would like mm -hmm. to recognize specific entities in the text that that are just not available in the generic language models available on agin phase for example so they have to build their own yeah, I, I was recently at a conference where there was a woman from Ambulance Victoria speaking and she was saying how Ambulance Victoria had to build their own named entity recognition model because the generic models, or no, sorry, it was a sentiment analysis model because the generic models did not understand the way paramedics speak. Exactly. This is a very, very common problem. Uh, that's why we are <clears throat> partnering with, um, with a company called uh, UBI AI. Uh, that uh, offers a sort of annotation tool, you know, in which uh, domain experts can just go through uh, tons of documents or fewer documents and uh, annotate entities and relationships that are relevant for their specific domain and build uh, automatic, uh, uh, automatically models, language models out of the uh, of this annotation. Uh, this is a very, very relevant task because, uh, as we said, uh, once you approach specific domains, with this specific problem, you need to build um, your own uh, language model. And these tools um, allow you to, to do this specific task uh, that uh, through annotation, you can create your own model to recognize what matters for, for you, for, for the domain that you are trying to handle. 
Yeah, in, in my previous job, we were working in a very specific domain. And one of the biggest challenges we found was get, finding individuals within the organisation who understood the data well enough to annotate it and who were prepared to spend all the hours or days that it would require in order to annotate that data. <laughs> well, uh, I can't say what is more difficult to, to find people with the right expertise or to convince them um, to uh, spend time um, on a laptop or a computer, you know, and uh, performing the annotation. Um, well, let me say that uh, uh, this is hard everywhere. Uh, what we are trying to do is to make this, uh, uh, this process uh, more automated, uh, which means that uh, through, I don't know, a dictionary, for example, you can uh, feed the first um, annotation, for example, um, and uh, creating a sort of um, uh, feedback loop. You know, while you are annotating, the language model is built, and this language model can be used for pre-annotating the next set of documents, so that really the amount of time concretely required for the real users, the real people, to provide feedback could be reduced, you know, and so they will be less um, annoyed by this uh, this task. So really, it's hard to say uh, what is more complicated um, because um, you are right. You know, convincing them to spend hours on uh, in front of a computer to annotate it's not that simple. So, so what you're saying is, if someone's already annotated Australia as the name of a country before, and every time Australia comes up, it's always annotated as a country name then it could skip over that and just yes. focus on, I don't know if it's never come across the name of a small country, like, I don't know, Liechtenstein, for example, which doesn't come up as often. Yeah, exactly. That's basically the idea. Um, so let's say the, the dictionary base is much simpler because uh, if the name matches, uh, then you know what it is. Uh, and this can be used uh, for training a, a more complex language model, not dictionary base. And again, uh, this language model can be used to pre-annotate. Uh, of course, the dictionary generally, um, let's say, has a higher uh, precision. So, uh, you know, if Australia is recognized as a, um, as a key entity, it will be always like this. You know, there are few chances that it is wrong. Uh, but the recall is very um, limited, you know, which means that you won't be able to recognize all the, the name of the locations, for example, you know, because you don't have a dictionary containing all this. Um, of course, the locations is not a good example, but I think that you understood what I mean. Yeah. That's why uh, on the other side, the language model could give you the opposite could have an higher recall. So uh, in theory, uh, this language model is capable of let's say, catching more names, uh, but at the same time uh, could be wrong, you know, uh, mm -hmm. because the structure of the sentence could suggest that uh, that specific uh, entity is a location, for example, but uh, could not be. Uh, it's just that uh, it seems to be a location, but it's not. And that's where, again, where the humans can not only add annotation, but can also correct annotations, you know. And then in this process, uh, you can have uh, this uh, sort of a human in the loop uh, in which uh, you are you know, let's say helping concretely the the machine to understand the human uh, human language. I will say that based on uh, my personal experience, all this work uh, pay off. It has a really a, a good payoff, you know, because um, what you can get out of this is a custom uh, language model that uh, 
nobody has, for example. So there is a lot of value uh, resulting out from 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 this effort, um, really, um, specifically for tiny domains uh, that you were mentioning before. You know, this is a, a key um, step to uh, extract relevant information and then build a knowledge graph out of uh, your text. And I could imagine some startup company, for example, um, going to the trouble of building one of those knowledge graphs, um, and then they could build some sort of product around that, which would presumably, um, if it's the right product and people really want it, it would be unique and allow them to charge quite a high sum for it. Yes, yes. There are many, many companies, you know, that are doing this uh, um, for a living. We are in contact with a few of them in which, uh, um, you know, what they have as a business value is uh, literally the, the right expertise. You know, so they have on one side domain experts that are, um, let's say, engaged for annotating documents for uh, building ontologies also, for example. So not only um, annotating documents, but also creating uh, relevant information um, in the form of uh, uh, ontologies, right? Connections between uh, uh, key concepts. Um, and on the other side, they have also um, technical people that could uh, help, uh, I don't know, a pharmaceutical company, for example, to leverage these uh, language models, these ontologies in the right way for building a complex, um, let's say, applications for example, you know, so that's, uh, that's an enormous way, uh, let's say, um, uh, there is an, an enormous opportunities for many small companies, you know, to build a, a niche uh, uh, domain language, for example, and offer this to their to their customers. So it's a new world, I would say, opportunities for, for these companies. I've come across graph databases in my own work, um, and that was in a relatively large organization with us in, within Australia. But um, from speaking to other people, I know many data scientists have never come across graph databases before. How prevalent are graph databases at the moment? Still not that much in the sense that uh, it is growing. Um, I mean, in the last 10 years, definitely it's much easier now to find people that are expert or at least aware of this new area. Uh, but still, um, you know, I would say that the data science field is so huge that uh, um, everything is uh, uh, very specific. Uh, for example, you have many data scientists, uh, for example, working in the NLP space, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like uh, not only extracting the relevant information, but also building uh, uh, questioning answer systems and, and so on and so forth. Then you have, uh, uh, let's say, data scientists that are expert of uh, um, for detection, and again, uh, this uh, is a huge uh, uh, area, um, you know, in which people really specialize in that specific field or in the recommendation or in uh, many other, let's say, high-level set of applications. And um, uh, let's say that a graph in this space uh, um, could be and help in each of these, uh, of these vertical, but still is still not so um, well understood, you know, because uh, it's not only... Um, a, a niche. It's really a, a new arrow uh, in their bow. They could use, uh, for example, um, the graphs for uh, improving recommendation engine, uh, uh, solving a, I don't know, cold start problem, for example. Uh, the same could be for uh, 
for detection, you know, they can use graph for solving the, uh, for revealing rings, which means that the people that are connected to each other, you know, they are trying to uh, accomplish a certain type of frauds. So it's, it's not that you have to use uh, one or the other, but uh, they can be combined uh, in many uh, domains uh, for offering better services to the, um, uh, to their internal company or uh, to their users. Uh, unfortunately, this is still not perceived uh, uh, as this. You know, there are um, not that many conferences speaking about uh, uh, graphs or knowledge graphs, and not many people uh, attending just yet. It will take time, but um, uh, definitely I see that the trend is very uh, clear. Uh, you know, you can see the number of companies using uh, graphs or uh, uh, leveraging graph technologies for their advanced services. It will come. It's just that uh, we need more uh, more time. And definitely, you know, books like um, our books or other people's book can, can, can help in this, uh, in this process. Does the prevalence of graph database uptake differ by country? Well, we definitely noticed that um, uh, there are some differences in, uh, in different countries. Um, for example, when uh, we first landed in Australia, uh, we noticed that it was a sort of green field for us, you know, um, uh, differently than the U.S., where this concept was uh, um, very well established. Uh, but, you know, U.S., you know, they are always uh, um, cutting edge in the, mm. in the technology. Um, in Australia, it was a, a bit more complicated for us to convince people that uh, uh, this could be the way to go. But uh, I would say that uh, after a while, um, we noticed that uh, this generated uh, a lot of interest. And now we have different companies working with us um, and uh, we are offering our services and even our, let's say, teaching um, effort to, to them uh, in order to educate uh, to the use of graphs as, a, again, another technology that can be uh, useful in many, many uh, different scenarios. Next thing I want to explore is how can machine learning be applied to a graph database? Okay, this is an interesting question because I, I see, let's say, uh, graph databases and machine learning that can, uh, let's say, um, use each other in, uh, uh, in different ways. Um, let me say that uh, on one side, you can have uh, that the graph uh, databases uh, can um, be used for organizing uh, your data before applying any machine learning model. Um, you know, one of the major uh, tasks um, in the machine learning is a uh, data preparation, data mm -hmm. uh, cleaning, uh, uh, let's say feature engineering. Uh, uh, these are complex tasks, you know, that sometimes uh, take uh, more than 80% of a data scientist's uh, time. Uh, in this sense, uh, the graphs can help you, uh, as I mentioned before, you know, to collect uh, uh, data, but not in the same way in which, uh, for example, Data Lake was doing before. Because in the Data Lake, uh, what happened was just that uh, people were putting all their data in the whatever structure, you know, and then data scientists, the, the poor data scientists have uh, to literally go through an enormous um, uh, set of tasks for uh, cleaning, uh, uh, improving and reaching uh, before even start thinking about uh, uh, any uh, machine learning model. Uh, graphs and knowledge graphs uh, specifically have uh, the semantic applied to this, uh, to this data. So it's not only data 
it's uh, uh, organized data, which means that uh, you know that a person is a person with uh, the relevant, uh, um, uh, let's say, connections and with the relevant uh, attributes. It's totally different. You know, it's a really well-organized uh, uh, source of truth uh, that you can then use for uh, performing uh, uh, data cleaning, but also for extracting the features that you, you need uh, for the next step. So in this case, uh, graphs can help you really in the early stages of your um, uh, of your processes or your analysis. Other than that, uh, uh, what you can do uh, on the other way around is to literally leveraging graphs for building your machine learning models. You know, uh, you can use a graph algorithms, for example, um, uh, directly. If you imagine uh, um, the social network case, uh, you know, you can uh, easily use the network to identify key people, for example. You know, this is a classical example, but you can use it for identifying uh, clusters, uh, like communities inside uh, the, uh, let's say, the graph. Of course, this is useful not only uh, in the social network analysis. Uh, imagine, uh, for example, if you are uh, storing a, a protein-to-protein -protein interaction in your graph database, you know, and you perform uh, a community detection. In this case, what you are recognizing are um, set of proteins that are generally um, well connected to, together, and uh, they can be, for example, connected to a well-defined set of diseases. So you can literally create models of your reality uh, based on uh, graph algorithms. Recently, uh, for example, there is this new trend called uh, uh, graph neural networks. You know, uh, in this case, what you do is to store your um, information, again, in the form of a graph, then you apply this uh, neural networks model, uh, and you are able to, uh, let's say, move literally from the graph space to a multidimensional space. You are vectorizing, for example, these, uh, these nodes, and these vectors are uh, the input of complex model that you can, uh, uh, for example, use for building a classification. You can build uh, also a link prediction as we were discussing before. So literally, um, you know, you can use uh, graphs in many areas of your um, uh, machine learning tasks. You know, as I said, you can use as an input, you can use as a core element uh, of your, um, uh, let's say, uh, machine learning uh, tasks, or you can use even for, uh, for exploration, you know, for sometimes even for understanding uh, uh, how certain type of models are, uh, are working. Uh, you know that uh, recently uh, there is uh, also this, uh, uh, this new trend uh, related to explainable AI, you know, because uh, if uh, you are offering uh, recommendations, nobody cares, you know, nobody uh, even asks um, you know, how the Netflix recommendation engine is working. I don't care, you know, if Netflix will recommend this or that, I can say, oh, wow, this is very relevant for me, or I don't care. Uh, if uh, a self-driving car is driving me somewhere, uh, well, I have no idea how it works, you know, how this car can read all the uh, the environmental variables and convert these uh, in, in a path, you know. Of course, I care that I would like to to reach a specific place uh, in, a, in a safe way, but uh, no more than that. But imagine if you are a, a doctor and you have to recommend uh, uh, a specific treatment uh, to, um, uh, to a patient uh, based on uh, um, a machine learning model. Well, you would like to know how this uh, specific treatment has been uh, produced by the machine. In this sense, uh, uh, graphs can help you to better understand uh, a uh, certain type of uh, internals, let's say, of the models. And so they can 
since they apply this semantic on top of data, uh, it's easier for you and for the machine to explain um, how certain type of decisions have been um, taken from the machine that, uh, you know, uh, allow the, in this case, uh, the, uh, the doctor to understand uh, why this is uh, coming out from the machine and, of course, being more confident before um, healing the, uh, the patient with a specific uh, treatment, for example. Yep. So that's because people can actually look at the graph itself and say, exactly. and say this node connects to this node and et cetera. Well, that's basically the, the most relevant one. But of course, you know, uh, in certain cases, you can explore a, a huge area of the graph in one shot and understand uh, exactly from where these uh, uh, decisions are, um, are coming, you know. So, uh, but yeah, it is exactly exploration that allows you to, to discover certain type of decisions. And I could imagine that's also very important in the financial and legal um, domains because, well, if someone's going to be sent to jail for something, they want to know why. And if someone's going to be penalised financially, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. This is a critical aspect. Uh, you know, um, really, this explainable AI is coming up uh, here and there more and more often. Uh, even in the criminal intelligence that you were mentioning, you know, there are uh, some studies uh, in which, uh, um, for several reasons, uh, they noticed that uh, certain type of machine learning algorithms were a bit biased. You know, by introducing this uh, explainability, they were able to, to understand why um, these uh, models were biased by certain type of, uh, I don't know, characteristic of the people, for example, you know, and this helped them to fine tune, for example, and such. So this is becoming a, a really relevant uh, uh, information to know about, you know, how these models are working, because the more we are using uh, these tools, uh, of course, the more ethical issues are jumping out and uh, mm. explainability is a key aspect that uh, allows them to judge um, once the machine is uh, uh, providing a certain type of output and, uh, and then take the right decisions. You know, if it's biased or not, uh, this will allow them to uh, really use at the best the, uh, these tools. Yeah, and avoid a data scandal in the process. Of course, of course, because, you know, what happens then is that uh, by, uh, for a mistake, uh, all the processes are uh, then considered not valuable, you know, even mm -hmm. though you spend years and years. And just because uh, for a certain reason, uh, the system is not performing well, because the data that we provided uh, um, is not correct, uh, then, you know, the entire process is, uh, throw, uh, is thrown away. And this is definitely not what we want as data scientists or as uh, machine learning engineers. I was reading a book um, earlier today and one of the quotes they had in it was the author was saying that um, he couldn't believe the number of times he'd been asked um, if the wrong data goes into a particular model, will the model still spit out the right answer? Yeah, <laughs> well, uh, this is explicitly mentioned uh, in, in my book, you know, and I like to uh, to mention this in many of my talks, you know, uh, that of course the, the final quality of your model is uh, definitely dependent on the quality of the input data. Uh, yeah. That's absolutely uh, true. And uh, unfortunately, um, not all the people, even uh, in the data scientist's role, um, think of the, uh, let's say, input data um, at the early stages. And again, that's where I, I really see that uh, the, the value of graph can, uh, can shine, you know, uh, because, of course, if you can look at the data from a different perspective, navigate it uh, 
in a simple way, um, maybe that uh, this will force um, many of us uh, to think uh, of the data from a different perspective, you know, before using it for, um, let's say, uh, feeding complex machine learning. Because unfortunately, machine learning as a, as a generic concept is a, an inductive process. You know, it tries to generalize uh, from, uh, uh, from simple data. Uh, there is a, uh, this nice uh, example in which, uh, you know, you have a bag and uh, you are taking out uh, from these uh, pennies after three run, um, you know, three tests, the, the machine learning will say, okay, all the, um, the coins in the bag are pennies because, you know, there is nothing else that uh, it can say, uh, but in reality it's not like this. So unfortunately, this uh, data uh, input problem should be considered more and more rather than less and less. Yeah, and just because something's happened every day forever still doesn't mean it will happen tomorrow. I remember um, I used to teach Bayesian statistics and I remember one of the questions I used to get the students to answer was, um, what is the probability that the sun will rise tomorrow given it's risen every day since the world began? <laughs> That's an interesting question. <laughs> Suppose a data scientist who's listening to this program um, got really interested in graph data science and knowledge graphs. What steps could they take to get started in this field? Well, uh, I would say that there's plenty of book uh, uh, in this area. Um, so not only uh, my book, but uh, there are many others uh, in which you can, uh, um, you know, find a useful um, beginning example. Um, you know, which you can just start uh, looking at small data set uh, and uh, start working with uh, uh, with these uh, data set and uh, understand uh, the basic um, algorithms, for example, like, I don't know, PageRank uh, or community detection like Louvain and such. Um, and I think that once you started looking at the power of these, uh, let's say, tools, um, so not only the graph um, database, but also the algorithms, you will fell in love, you know, uh, fall in love with uh, with them and uh, start uh, using uh, uh, more and more. Again, I don't I don't want to say that uh, graph databases uh, can solve all the issues, but definitely uh, it should be part uh, of um, any uh, data scientist uh, background, you know, knowing that there is a, a third way of doing a certain type of things. Um, and maybe with the time, uh, you know, certain type of practices will become a sort of standard in the uh, let's say uh, for certain type of applications like um, as i said recommendation for example for detection so simple basic databases uh, and um, and then uh, you will see that uh, you will ask for more and more one thing i found really useful when i was getting started with graph databases were the neo4j sandboxes oh yes yeah so these are temporary environments that you can create that have neo4j preloaded and they come with test data and you can experiment with the various graph algorithms in them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they are plenty of examples in that sense. Uh, but also, you know, if you search on these uh, SNAP um, uh, data sets, you know, it's plenty of uh, example of um, um, simple um, graph databases that you can uh, easily import. You know, they are almost in a CSV format. Uh, uh, with a clear explanation of, of what they contain, contain, and um, you can really import them uh, in the easiest way. So, like uh, run a, a load uh, CSV command, for example, in Neo4j, 
And once you have the database uh, and you have uh, also the this graph data science library that is available uh, with uh, with Neo4j, you can easily run over seventy different algorithms on top of the uh, of the database and uh, and see what uh, uh, comes out. And definitely, you will find something interesting. You know, uh, some story, let's say, around the data to uh, to tell. And that's the good start. So is there anything on your radar in the AI data and analytics space that you think is going to become important in the next three to five years? Well, uh, definitely, uh, as I mentioned, uh, there is this um, uh, explainable AI that is uh, clearly uh, recurring more and more often, you know, because uh, um, since, let's say, more domains are approaching the, uh, let's say, the graph space specifically, but also the machine learning in general, uh, you know, more questions are coming in the in this uh, in this sense. You know, how can I explain uh, why the machine is taking a certain type of uh, uh, of decision? Another uh, very relevant aspect, uh, it, uh, also what uh, we were discussing before about uh, this uh, uh, annotation process. You know, mm -hmm. uh, with a specific goal of uh, uh, extracting relevant um, uh, information out of uh, text. Uh, annotation is a key, uh, let's say, step to uh, help people to, um, let's say, teach to the machine how to recognize certain type of things. Once you have the entities in the graph, well, uh, you know, many, many things can be, can be done on top, of, uh, on top of it. But uh, unfortunately, without uh, this step, uh, uh, clearly it will be difficult to do. So again, uh, um, annotation can help. Uh, explainable AI, I mentioned already. I, I see also a lot of... Uh, of interest around uh, this um, uh, questioning answering system, you know, um, and in this area specifically, it's not all about, uh, you know, there is this new trend about the uh, chat GPT in which yes. you ask something and you get uh, a very um, big paragraph that describe uh, uh, what you asked for. Uh, but there is another, uh, let's say, tiny uh, yet. Um, area in which um, when you ask for a question, you would like to get a, a precise answer, like a number, like a, the name of a disease, and not an entire paragraph, you know. And in this area specifically, graphs uh, have a, a, key, uh, a key role because what happens uh, in many of these, uh, um, let's say, studies is that uh, what they do is to take the question and convert literally in a, in a query, uh, generally in a Spark QL query or in a Cypher query, and then they use this query to um, access a graph and get literally the answer. So a set of nodes or a set of relationships coming out from this, um, let's say from this graph. So it's a totally different type of a questioning answer system because in the first time you ask to chat GPT and obtain an explanation. It is cool, it is fine, absolutely. I also tried it a couple of days ago and it's super uh, you know, um, fun. To, to, to get the answers even to complex questions like what is the meaning of the life? You know, we, we played a lot, definitely useful. Uh, but there are many, many other use cases in which you don't want to get a paragraph. You would like to get a, a, an answer, a, a number. Again, uh, a specific uh, set of numbers, for example, you know, uh, based on your, uh, on your question. In this case, knowledge graphs are playing a, a key role there because uh, they contain information let's say structured in a way that is not text, you know, it's like nodes and relationships. So it's much easier for the, for the model to extract out of these uh, specific answers that are not paragraphs of text. So if I asked what's the population of Australia, it would extract 
um, the keywords population and Australia, convert that into some sort of query and return 20-something million. Yeah, exactly. That's the purpose of this question and answer system. You know, totally different than a chatbot that, of course, has, let's say, other type of issues like keep the conversation, you know, eventually keeping the context. Um, but for in this specific case, you would like to get the number, you know, because we have a specific question. You like to know, you don't want a paragraph describing uh, uh, where is Australia when uh, um, it was discovered. You know, you would like to have a number like, okay, this is the population. You know, uh, for this type of questions, um, the, let's say chat uh, GPT or similar type of conversational AI um, bot cannot be helpful. What final advice would you give to data scientists looking to create business value from data? Uh, first of all, focusing on the, uh, let's say, on the business case. Uh, you know, because what they noticed uh, in the past, uh, in the, even for us, is that uh, when you look at a certain type of domain or a problem, what you do first is to collect all the data that you can and then try to get out some answer. Uh, we should start uh, from a totally different approach. You know, um, we should use this uh, crisp DM, mm. um, let's say, approach, you know, that is the cross-industry standard uh, for um, data mining. That is uh, a, a very good standard, uh, you know, uh, even when you come to the machine learning in general. The, the interesting thing is that you should always start from the from the business case. So you should, should first understand the business and the goal that this business has. So ask you, okay, what... What is the, the value that they would like to get out of this? Once you have this information, you should look at the data and extract only the relevant information that you need. You know, the, the relevant portion of this data that uh, is the bare minimum to accomplish the task that you would like to, uh, to accomplish. That is totally different than before. I mentioned already this data lake issue. It was exactly this bottom-up approach in which you, what you do is to say, okay, I have this bunch of data. Let's put everything together and then data scientists will do their job. And it was a nightmare, you know, because you have this data lake, plenty of useless data for whatever, transactional um, data, unstructured data. And these pure data scientists have to really go through this lake and find a very tiny uh, data, um, you know, distributed across this huge uh, um, set of information. Start with the problem. You know uh, and focus on the on the value that uh, there's uh, um, uh, the solution to this problem can deliver then go back to the data and say okay where where it is the the minimum set of information that i can uh, uh, extract and how i can extract and uh, use this uh, for solving my problem most probably it won't be enough but at least you will reach uh, immediately your scope and then you can reiterate and uh, for example, uh, extend the set of data that you are using uh, or verifying that the results are correct and iterate again and again and again. And finally, you will get the result much faster than starting instead looking first for your data and spending 80% of your time just cleaning up uh, things that you don't care about. So that's my uh, personal suggestion. Basically, you're better off trying to fish in a barrel rather than trying to fish in the whole Pacific Ocean. Absolutely, yes. So um, that's about all we've got time for today, Alessandro. Um, for listeners who want to learn more about you or get in contact, what can they do? Well, definitely they can send me an email at uh, alessandro at uh, or they can search for my name uh, on LinkedIn or uh, just on Google because uh, it's plenty of my talks and uh, 
um, use my book if they want, or my books now. I mean, still the second one is on me, which means that it's still not fully available. Um, and, uh, you know, it's plenty of reference uh, um, for them to learn. Um, and if they have any, any question, they can reach out to me through LinkedIn or through email or whatever other mean they, uh, they prefer. Even come to lecture and visit me in the office. And I'll put a link to your um, LinkedIn page and to your books in the show notes. Thank you for that. So um, thanks very much for joining me here today, Alessandro. Thank you for inviting me again. It was a great pleasure speaking with you. Definitely a lot of interesting questions. And for those in the audience, thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and this has been Value Driven Data Science, brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting. <laughs>